Good morning, OVC Radio. My name is Corey Rosen, and I am with the Story Podcast today. I have a super awesome guest, but before we get into that, if you want to support us, we have some merchandise. We have stickers on sale, and we have hoodies with the logo on the front, and the first 50 guests on the back, and that includes Mr. George Yellick. George has been playing drums since 1977. He did a bachelor's work in jazz studies with a concentration in percussion at the University of North Texas from 1983 through 86. He studied with Colin Bailey, a drummer of Vince Guaraldi. Did I pronounce that one right? Vince Guaraldi, yes. Vince Guaraldi. Greg, oh, I've already forgot this one. Bissonette, a drummer of Woody Herman, David Lee Roth. Rick Latham from Quincy Jones, Clyde Lucas from Illinois Jaquette, and George has also toured as a drummer with rhythm and blues artists such as Little Joe Blue and Greg Smith. During, and during that time, he shared the stage with names such as B.B. King, Johnny Taylor, Bobby Blue, Bobby Blue Bland, and a host of others. George has been playing jazz, funk, blues, and sacred music in the central Pennsylvania area for the past 30 years, working with artists such as Dave Wilson and Robin Work. His current creative musical project is called a is a trio called the Go Particle. George has been playing and teaching guitar, bass, drums, and piano for the past twenty years. He is currently the music director of Wheatland Presbyterian Church in Lancaster and also served as an adjunct professor for Lancaster Bible College. And George has participated at many music training events, both locally and internationally. George, how are you doing today? I'm good. That's good. I love how you try to say Bobby Blue Bland. That's a, <laughs> that's a tongue twister. It is. I and I I have so many speech impediments as it is, trying to figure out how to say stuff correctly. So what? When you were young, what got you inspired into music? What was it for you that made you want to bang on drums? Well, you know that's interesting. My dad was. Um, an audiophile. Mm. So in the, you know, I was born in 1965. So in the late 60s, early 70s, he, uh, he just loved music. He was not musical, but he loved music. So he also loved gear because he was an engineer for IBM and he just had the best stereo equipment. So he always had, you know, JBL speakers, Dynaco tube amps and turntables and, uh, real to real decks and all that. So I grew up from a very young age hearing lots of music. He bought tons of albums. When he died, he had about 2,500 albums, LPs, vinyl, you know, all that. And then he, he got into every technology. He had CDs when they first came out, videotapes, laser discs, you know, DVDs, all of that stuff, big library. But um, so, yeah, I, I listened to lots of music young. So I just had the exposure, and he liked uh, he he liked every kind of music except jazz and opera, hmm. and you can't fault the person for that, really. I mean, <laughs> but he liked all forms of pop music and country music, and he liked classical music, and he had some big collections. And so I had the exposure. He uh, had bought a home organ, and I started teaching myself songs. I think I was about five years old. Hmm. And, you know, sit there and play on the organ. And there was a book that was color-coded, and I would tell myself that stuff. But, I don't know, my parents never picked up on it enough to, to get me lessons early. So, I think I was around 12. And one day I took um, 
my brother's Indian guide drum. He was in the Indian guides, which is kind of like the Boy Scouts, but gotcha. Native American themed. It probably doesn't exist anymore. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or they changed the name, I would imagine. And then like a Dallas Cowboys trash can and a bunch of little things. And I had some sticks and I started banging. And then I had this cool hat. Kind of like a pimp hat with a feather in it or something, like a 70s hat. I put it on and I was sitting there drumming in the living room on my makeshift drum set. And, you know, my family would walk by and look at me like, what's he doing? <laughs> and it was like right then I, I just knew I'm like, I'm a drummer. And that was it. And I got drum lessons. I joined school band and played snare drum on a practice pad with a bell kit and mm -hmm. did the whole band thing. Real involved in that and took lessons. And yeah, from that moment on, music was it. So did you, and then you, I guess you assumed you went to college for, for music. Yeah, it was an, a natural progression. I, I was in a school in Richardson, a suburb of North Dallas. And University of North Texas. It was called North Texas State University at the time. State school in Denton, just north of there. Um, a lot of guys from my high school, which was a really large high school, ended up going to North Texas. And they had this great jazz program, world famous jazz program. And so I went there. State school was like $17 a credit hour for wow. if you were in state tuition that's not yeah. bad not bad not bad. not bad that's practically free compared yeah. to now right yeah um yeah so it was a no-brainer so i went to north texas to study drums and um, studied with the guys that are in the bio there they were they were all on staff in north texas yeah that's something you got some of those uh big names out there yeah they were just they were just really qualified drummers great teachers um so I had great background that way. And I was there three years, and I did all right. My grade average was um, a B, you know, <laughs> B average or whatever. Um, and in my third year, I started playing. I had this uh, fusion trio, drums, bass, and guitar, and I was the drummer. And a guitar player played for some rhythm and blues bands mm. and what they used to call the Chitlin Circuit. Which tell me about that? Well, it's in the South, mm -hmm. right? And it's where it's the, all the blues clubs. So it's uh, you know just like what what the you, you would say across the tracks back then, right? So it's just all African American community uh, bars and all that, the chilling circuit and so did that blues scene. Cities? Yeah. So um, so this particular group, I started playing with them, and then. Due to my youthful uh, stupidity and stuff, my parents, who were helping me with school, were like, okay, whatever's in the bank, you take that. We're not helping you anymore. And, and I was like, okay, I'm playing, on, I'm playing in this band, and I'm learning more about playing jazz by playing in this blues band mm -hmm. than I really was learning at school at the time. Because at school, I don't know, I, it, it was a strange experience. It, I remember I tried out for the lab bands. The University of North Texas has nine big bands that meet every semester. That's what they're famous for. They're called the lab bands. So they have the one o'clock, two o'clock, all the way to the nine o'clock. Oh. 
and, and that's a lot of jazz bands, right? A lot of jazz bands. Yeah. Um, you would think it's a lot of jazz bands, but for the amount of people that show up to try out for them, uh, it's not. It's not. Oh, so, wow. so because of that, each, each band down from the 2 o'clock down has two rhythm sections so they can just have enough slots to get, enough, get the students in, right? And the rhythm sections rotate and what have you. Anyway, I remember I did one audition for the lab band, and the, the music said to play a shuffle. Mm-hmm. And I played, so a shuffle is, one guy explained it to me like this. It's shuffle, 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 yeah. shuffle, shuffle. Right, well, I don't know. I was 20, and I, I didn't know that. Right. I, I should have. I probably should have known yeah. that, but I didn't. And I'm going, I guess that's, I figured that's what I'm going to school for. So all these guys are great teachers, but none of them said, hey, play me a shuffle. Let me hear how your shuffle sounds. And then they would realize that I didn't know it. And so I, I never got. And so after the audition, you know, uh, consulting with one of these teachers, he's like, why didn't you play a shuffle? And I was like, I thought it just meant to swing. Ding, 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 right. ding. That's swing, right? So. Um, but when I got into the blues band, there were these older cats, the sax players and all that, you know, and they would look back and they were like, man, your shuffle is just, the sat one sax player, he's like, hey, he said, look, I'm not a drummer, but, <laughs> um, I know what a shuffle supposed to sound like. So if you would just give me your stick, I'll play it on the cymbal for you. So he, mm. now see, this is a point in a. That uh, where a lot of young guys kind of mess up because of their ego or whatever, mm. and they go, "Ah, oh, you're not going to tell you know what? Who do you think you are?" Right. Blah blah. And they would, but I was like humble at that point, and I said, "Yeah, sure, show me." And so he took my stick and he played the shuffle on my cymbal. Ding, it's a ching, it's a ding, it's a ching. I'm like, okay, I can do that. And so I, the bottom line there is, I'm working with a horn section. The same things that North Texas was teaching me. How to kick the, how to kick the rhythms of the horns and do all the things that you do in a big band, and I was learning it better in the rhythm and blues band, and I kind of had this choice. Well, I could get some student loans, stay in school, but I got this gig, and I, it would really be hard to do this gig because they traveled a lot and stay in school. Right. So I was like, okay, I'm going with the band. And so I did that for the next few years and traveled around with them. And it was a great experience because it was all ends of the spectrum. They would do things like play a big blues fest on this in another city, say in North Carolina or Tennessee or somewhere, or Mississippi. And so we would go out to do that blues fest. And that would be, you know, like a big show, like 15,000, 20,000 Cedar Hall or whatever with five bands lined up on it. And on the way out, we would stop at all these blues dives. So they would fill, you know, they would fill the trip out with gigs on the way out there and the way back. So I was getting like both ends of the spectrum, mm-hmm. playing the big high, high energy PA lights sh- and, and all of that kind of scenario and then going and playing in the in the clubs late at night on the way back and uh, that was a great experience and i did that for the next few years so what was your next step after that 
Well, I played with little Joe Blue. I played with a couple of different acts, and the band, I, Greg Smith is mentioned on there. His horn section worked for a guy named Johnny Taylor. Johnny Taylor had several hits, like the song, Who's Making Love to Your Old Lady? I don't know if you ever heard that, but that was his big hit. And his horn section played with the Gregs. They would travel with him, and then when they were in town, they would they would play with the Greg Smith band. And so they decided to form their own band mm. and just back up different blues front guys. Right. So, and then that's how we hooked up with little Joe blue and little Joe blue. He was the real deal. He, he, he was friends with BB King and he sounded a lot like him and he just did that straight, you know, Mississippi blues. He was from Louisiana, lived in <laughs> Texas and so I did that, and when uh, one at one point he he said, "I'm going to L.A. I'm going to cut an album," and he did, as far as I know, but he never came back. I never heard from him again. So the next thing I did is I got a gig with something completely opposite. It was it was an '80s R&B band. And by R&B, I mean like Janet Jackson, um, Michael Bolton, the 80s pop music, you know, pop dance music, right? And it was all covers, uh, but it paid well. And we did all like the clubs in Dallas and traveled to different cities and did army bases and all that kind of stuff. It was a high energy dance band. And it was completely opposite where the blues thing was all feel and you know dynamics and stretching and more more improv this was yeah this r&b thing was the keyboard player had a commodore 64 computer where he had all the tracks basically he had all these keyboards that it would that it would trigger and he would hit the space bar and we would play along with the sequence so i was drumming on real drums but he had all these keyboard parts and bass parts programmed and so the whole first set was just, he'd hit the space bar and it would play an entire set and we would play along with it. Oh, wow. Which was cool at first and a challenge, you know. Um, but then it got to be what I would call mental slavery. <laughs> 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 and I got old after a while. And um, I had already met my wife. I met her while I was playing the blues gig. And uh, she, at the time, was working for what you would call, it was a new thing. Um, They called it a partial day treatment center. Mm. And I guess now you would call that something like intensive outpatient or whatever. But what it was, it it was, you know, kids that needed treatment for emotional problems and stuff like that. And they would go there during the day and they would go to school, but they lived at home. So she was working there, and um, I thought, and this was before I started playing with the the R&B band I was talking about, I thought, well, that sounds pretty cool. Like, I'm working with kids. Right. Yeah, work, and I don't know why I thought that. It's kind of an <laughs> irrational thought. Why? What do you think? Um, well, because I was all about music. I was, uh, you know... I wanted to be an artist, that whole thing. And uh, why I thought working with kids would be 
great? I don't know. But I did, and I guess that's sort of the difference between um, a vocation and a calling. Mm. So music is kind of a vocation, yes. And it, you know, it's a calling. Like I said, I kind of knew I was going to be a drummer for some weird reason. Just no real reason at all. Um, the calling thing, like, you know, my attitude was always when things were put in front of me, people would ask me to do things or they would be doing things and I would see that they needed to be done and I would say, yeah, I'm game for that. Let me give that a try. Mm. Um, so that was kind of the same thing. I thought, well, that that's meaningful, you know, like working with kids. So, so I looked for a job because I wanted to move to Fort Worth, the same city she lived in. So I looked for a job, and I found one with Catholic Charities. And what it was, it was a residential tr- treatment program. In other words, it was a home where the kids right. lived. And really what it was was a it was kids that were um, removed from custody from their parents for whatever reasons. Gotcha. Neglect, abuse, and that kind of they stuff. Like a, fo- a foster program? Maybe? Yeah. No, these were kids that actually their parents either lost temporary custody or lost full custody. and like yeah, they, more of like a CPS operation, maybe. Y- yeah, kind of. Um, I really didn't. I w- that was not my end right, of things. Of Legal, whatever, right? right? Uh, but basically what we would do is we'd go there. I was what was called a milieu therapist. And, you know, I went, I worked on weekends, so they weren't going to school or whatever. We would do activities with them and wake them up, you know, take them to breakfast. Like we were there the whole time. We're kind of the parents or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, didn't pay well, but very rewarding. Mm -hmm. And, um, it kind of set the stage for things I would do later in life and it gave me a certain skill set yeah I tell you what working with children is some of the best stuff that I've ever done uh, I teach children how to swim and uh, it's <laughs> it's painful in some ways because you know they'll grab you or they'll kick you in places you don't want to be kicked or grabbed but the reward afterwards it's when you can see a child uh, come to you scared and then they come to you confident and be able to like float on their back all by themselves. Right. It's so, so rewarding. And I'm sure it's a similar story. Well, yeah. Uh, and that's the thing about the callings. Uh, it, I remember when I was in high school, uh, like, you know, my neighbor, the neighbor ladies or whatever, they'd be like, oh, I heard, hear you play drums can you teach my five-year-old how to play drums mm. and again it's like well i don't really know how to teach sure why not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you know each time you accept something that you don't really necessarily have a skill set for and try to meet that challenge you you start to get that skill set and then you see the fruits of it right mm-hmm. so the the fruits of working with kids was that you know, I started to see that I was good with that, right? And and then you, also that I was getting joy from seeing light bulbs go off, right? That's mm-hmm. the that's the thing that I think the natural teachers, when I say natural teachers, people that are gifted to teach, because there's a lot of people that that are good at what they do, uh, but they're not. Yeah. They don't have the gift of teaching, and it just 
the ability to communicate to somebody and then have them have the light bulb yeah. go off and then you, you really enjoy that and you go yeah yeah that's something i learned of teaching music there's there's a skill to learning it and there's a skill to teaching it and those are often very different uh places <laughs> to- yeah very different places and i think one of the reasons i i like to teach is because i like to learn mm. So I get bored easily. Like, you know, when, when I was in school, like when I was in college, I also played bass. The bass department, they wanted me to switch to bass. Right. Why did I play bass? Well, I don't know, because I was a drummer and I wanted to compose. And it's like I, things open up and I want to learn these other skills because I want to do other things. And I don't just kind of stick with one thing all the time. So those learning processes, I kind of take the student on a journey with me so when students come into my studio, for instance, doing private lessons or whatever, and I'm working on some side project, it's music related. Maybe I'm like for a time I got into hammering cymbals because I'm a jazz drummer and the cymbal sound is very important. Yes, very right. Much so. Yeah, and it's like, and then I got on a website where these guys modify their cymbals, they hammer them and they lathe them, take weight off, all this stuff. And so I would get on this big learning experience. And I would share that with my students. So my mm. students would see that, in other words, what helps them learn is to learn the joy of learning. It's pretty simple, right? Yeah. And that's something I think that is lost on today is, is the learning is a lot of fun. It's just people make learning unfun in certain ways. <laughs> Yeah, there's a poem in there somewhere. There's a but there's there's a song in that for sure. There's there's a there's a, probably a whole book on that. Learning the fun of making learning unfun, something well, like that. Yeah, something like that. Well, because it's true. Because you know, today you have to take tests, and tests are not fun. You know, it's and it's so it's such a high pace thing where you have you're, you're forced to retain this information, but not in a healthy way that makes you learn. You, a test today, or at least when I'm in school, it's more of a, of a you have to learn this for this for this certain outcome. It's not because it's fun to learn this; it's because oh, you have to learn this. Well, you know, uh, that's the the problem with quantifying everything. Mm-hmm. So the you know, it's not that the test is bad; it's that the purpose of taking the test is, yeah. in my view, the purpose of taking the test is to show you what you don't know. Yeah. Not to show what you know. Right. Right? To me, the taking the test is a learning experience. Yeah. Oh, I got this wrong. That means I don't know this. That's what I need to learn next. Right. But when so much weight is put on the quantifying the grade, and you can't afford to have those missed points, now all of a sudden you're missing the point of the test. Now the point of the test is I have to ace this test right. because the point is the grade point at the end. Not finding out what I don't know and then continuing the learning. Right. right? So probably there are ways to organize, cl- you know, obviously in, in classes and things like that, you have to have standards and procedures and all. And there's probably ways to organize it where the tests are weighted lower in the beginning so you can afford to miss things on the test or whatever you know that's what the quiz used to be for Mm. here's a test that doesn't count for a lot 
Right. And it shows you what you don't know, right? But I think with today's grade point average being so overemphasized, um, it's hard for people to get into that mindset. Right, yeah. And that's why at LBC there was a teacher, uh, Dr. Carver, and I loved his style of teaching because his style of teaching was that you could take you could take three tests, and uh, whatever whatever was highest is what you you know got. So it, it afforded you to be wrong, and it didn't. It wasn't. It was low pressure. Exactly. And I learned so much more from that class. I know so much more about the Old Testament than I do the New Testament because of the way his uh, tests were structured like that. Because I could take it, first off, I had to take it three times, so I had to retain the information at least thrice. Right. And then I know the information that is wrong now, and I know now that what what is right. So whenever, like, apologetics or something comes up, something that's completely unrelated to uh, the purpose of the Old Testament testing, I can now say with authority, I know this because I got it wrong twice. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly, because it's in making the mistakes that you really learn. I, yeah. Those are, you know, how you learn the, your life lessons, basically. It's, I can't tell you how over this podcast it's learn from your mistakes. Your mistakes aren't what define you, and that's what the tests say, though, that your mis- mistakes are final, and you can't go back and fix it. Right. No, I agree. So you grew up in Texas. What made you come over to Lancaster? Uh, well, my wife, Darlene, she's from Lancaster County. Oh. So, uh, but I have a Pennsylvania history because my dad was from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Hmm. And my great-grandfather and my grandfather, they both worked for Bethlehem Steel. Oh, wow. And um, so I grew up coming to Pennsylvania every year of my childhood. We oh. would drive from Texas to Pennsylvania. Drive? Oh, yeah. I guess that's the only way. Not, well, not the only way, but that's kind of how you did it, I guess. Plane tickets were expensive back yeah. then. Yeah, very expensive. So I have, you know, I have a, two sisters and a brother, so we had a family of six. So <laughs> we didn't fly often. We did fly, but no, we would drive. And uh, so I had aunts and uncles, and my mom was from uh, Long Island, New York. Mm. So all my family was up here, the extended family. Only my immediate family lived in Texas. Why is that? Um, well, my dad got drafted in, in, which war? in Vietnam, Vietnam and all the other guys of his training, I don't know what you call it, but in boot camp, mm-hmm. those guys all went to Vietnam, but they sent him to Duncanville, Texas, which is south of Dallas. And so that's how I ended up there. And he, he, he loved it there. He never wanted to come back east after that. So fair enough. I, my, I, all of my mother's side of my family is from Texas. So all of the extended family uh, is, is in, you know where Carthage is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's kind of where she or she was born in Tyler, if you know where that is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Been there many, many times. Yeah, so that's that's where my entire family is based on. So there's Galveston, <laughs> Galveston and then there's uh, Baton Rouge, where her family is at. So that's really interesting. That the Texas-Pennsylvania connection, we call it. Yeah. Yeah, so I've made that drive every year of my life. In fact, we we just drove down there for my niece's wedding. Nice. And I got back last week. So, what was it like to move up here? Was it, I guess it wasn't cold, a cold move because you kind of had the connection a little bit. Well, yeah, I had the connection to Pennsylvania. So, uh we were living in Fort Worth when we got married, but we had the wedding up here and we 
had planned to have it at the Rockford Plantation, which is in Lancaster County Park. And we had the wedding here because, you know, all my family from the East Coast, my extended right. family could get the, out there easily. But then the first year of, of our marriage, we lived in Fort Worth. Um, and then her dad, who did a lot of work over in India, had a property, and he wanted to go to India for like six or eight weeks. And he said, why don't you guys come up here and watch the property for me? Um, so we had this plan. We were going to come up and watch his property. We kind of move up here mm -hmm. and then sort of figure out what hip city do we want to move to and then move again, right? And But it didn't work out that way. We put down roots mm. and all of that kind of stuff, and we stayed. So I'm in Lancaster. And honestly, the first day that we moved there, we were in Leola, and it was a Sunday. The first day I woke up, I think we got there on a Saturday and unloaded all our stuff. And I woke up on Sunday, and it was really quiet, and all I could hear were, like, buggies clip-clopping out on the street and I looked down and it was there was nothing and I'm like wow I kind of moved out into the middle of nowhere but that night we we decided to drive over to Route 30 and I'm like okay yeah it's it's a city yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Lancaster is it's really weird because you literally within 15 minutes of driving outside of Lancaster it is just farm yeah it's farms yeah it's farms so it's cool that way it's cool yeah it's yeah. really cool it's really nice because it's nice and quiet uh, outside of the city. And yeah, you get, <laughs> for whatever reason, uh, the Amish clip clops are really loud. I've yeah. Noticed, I've noticed that. Um, and sometimes they're really out late at night. I've, I don't know why. but That's the young people probably. Probably. So, yeah, I mean, and there's a, there's a lesson in that too yeah. uh, that relates back to music for me. Um. Because in Dallas, so I'd done all this rhythm and blues stuff, but you know, I wanted to be a jazz musician. Mm. Ultimately, it was the thing I wanted to do. And there's a lot of jazz gigs in Dallas, but there's also a lot of jazz musicians. You have a University of North Texas there, and there really aren't that many jazz gigs. Um, so I wasn't really playing jazz in Texas. I was playing a lot of other types of music and all that. And we, bo both Darlene and I were... I want to say I was a Christian, but I wasn't following Jesus, and we were both kind of in that that same spot. Right. Um, and I had a lot of ambiguity in in the way I was raised in the faith. You know, my dad was basically um, an atheist or an agnostic or whatever. Um, and my mom, she uh, she never lost her faith, so. I had a lot of misconceptions or whatever. So when we really came back to, to Christ um, and then moved up here, it wasn't long after that, uh, I soon, I the, one of the first things we did, I saw that there was a, a jazz jam at a club or a room that is no longer there. And... So we went to it, and there was a drummer named Aaron Walker there who was a great local jazz drummer. He's since moved to San Antonio, part of the Texas-Pennsylvania connection. Um, and I said to him, hey, you know, I, there were things about my playing that after playing 
doing all that touring and everything, there were things I was like, not right. Like my bass drum pedal technique wasn't right. And I just, mm. was, I wanted to work on some stuff. So I said, hey, who's a good teacher in the area? And he said, well, the guy you want to call is Clyde Lucas, who's mentioned in the bio there. So I called Clyde Lucas. And it's just one of those things about God gives you the desires of your heart. Because Clyde is this fantastic jazz drummer, gifted teacher, and Christian. Oh, wow. And, and Aaron wasn't a Christian, the, the drummer that I, you know, asked. Uh, cool guy, but I don't think he's a Christian. And so I called Clyde, and his answering machine picked up, and it was something like, blessings in the name of Jesus or something <laughs> on his answering machine. Um, I'm like, wow. And so I started taking lessons with him. And immediately, you know, out of that came him referring me to gigs he had been playing and didn't want to play anymore. And I started mm. to play jazz in the area. And I got to do the thing that ultimately a, a misconception I had as a really young believer was that, well, I want to play jazz so much. It's like an idol or whatever, like mm. to follow to follow Christ, yeah, yeah. I won't can't be a jazz musician. Right. Totally not true, obviously. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah, I mean that that's an interesting aspect of it. So it's like it was part of God's will for me to be in Pennsylvania. All of the things that have come out of that. You know, and, and that's another thing I learned moving. Moving is interesting because you move to a new area. When I was young, I had misconceptions about that too, and it's like Wow, this area is so different, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but people are, I don't know, pretty much this. People are people everywhere you go, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, there's cultural differences, and God's will is wherever you go. I think you have that liberty. Like mm -hmm. God had a will for me in Texas if I didn't come up to Pennsylvania, which would be different. But He also had a will for me up here. And uh, so you just got to stay in it. Yeah, it's right. God's going to use you where, wherever you are. Right. It might look different, but he's going to use you regardless. Yeah. So so that's how I got to PA. And uh, it's been a very, very cool thing ever since. Yeah. So what are some things uh, that you, what are some of the lessons that you have taken from the older population when you worked when in uh, Texas, right? Uh, and how have you applied that to your philosophy of music? So, like I was saying about the older cats? Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, those guys taught me a whole lot of stuff. And they weren't always nice about it. So, you know, if you're a prof like if you go into professional music as a player, um, you, you kind of have to have thick skin. Mm -hmm. You know, I can tell uh, when I have students that get easily discouraged by criticism. I hate criticism. And, you know, who, do, who likes it? Yeah, who likes right, it, right? right? And so being from my family background or whatever, my first reaction to criticism is anger. Mm. Right? So I'm just going to get mad at you. In my mind, I'm going to start cutting you Criti down. Yeah, criticizing, criticizing you. you instead. Well, 
I don't know. But with guys that care, I, I'm not that way. Like I was talking about this sax player. The way he said it and the way he approached it, and I'm eager to learn, right? Mm-hmm. So just knowing that I don't know everything, that's a good start. And if you if you do that, then you can pretty much learn from anybody. But these guys were constantly, you know, telling me what I was doing wrong and telling me what I was doing right. Mm. So, um, you know, the thing that I, I learned the most by playing on the blue circuit was playing in those dive bars. You go down there and, you know, people are there to forget about their troubles. Have fun. Yeah. And... In that particular environment, they don't really care about your polished mm-hmm. um, presentation. <laughs> right. You have to come on with it, right? You have to give, you have to put it out there. Um, and little Joe Blue, I can think of one instance where that really hit home. Because we would do these big shows and we would do all these gigs and, and, Oh, and one day we were playing locally in Dallas and we played a room. And the way these groups usually work is the band will play a set. And then the the head of the band, the headliner, he, he comes out the second and third set. Mm. So we played our set, you know, and the, the band's pretty lackluster because this club had like five people in it. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, okay, this the night's kind of a wash. There's five people in this club. Right. Um yeah, but we, I mean, we played, you know, it's not like that we played bad, but we definitely were not put putting it out there, you know? Right. But little Joe Blue came on, and he was just singing his heart out. And the whole band, after that set was done, we uh, one of the guys said, man, Joe, you were, you were really coming on with it. like." Mm-hmm. And Joe said, well, those five people, they paid their $10, Yeah, you know? And so I learned a lot from that. And just my experience playing since then, you know, I've come to realize that no matter what situation I'm playing in, whether it's in the basement of a church for some event that somebody organized, and, you know, I don't really know who's there, and I don't know what impact what we do We'll have on that person. So it may be the first time that a certain person has heard this kind of music in their life. And it may op- it, it may just be mind-blowing for them. Mm-hmm. Right? So I just kind of keep that open. And like, no matter where I am, this matters. Right. It's And it's it, it can be very discouraging when there's only like five or one person like looking at you or whatever. But you got to realize that some of these people are, like, for example, I'm an introvert. I hardly went anywhere. You remember Matt Cross? Matt Cross is the only reason why I, I ever went out of my room in my freshman year. Because he would drag me out to all these places. And uh, if when I went out to like uh, the open music scene, they, they really played their heart out. I don't think I'd be in the open music scene had they not played their heart out when there was like nobody there. Right. Yeah, and and it's actually, it doesn't matter how many people are there to me anymore, right? Because because I'm playing for the joy of the music, and that's right. the other thing is, and, and so all of the things that that I end up doing with teaching or working with kids, 
um, or playing music live or leading worship, you know, I'm a music director at a church. Um, all of those things complement each other in terms of philosophy mm-hmm. and the spirit of it and, you know, how you, how you go about thinking of it. Um, so, like, with teaching, students have performances. They have recitals, right? And a lot of times I will accompany them on the recital. And it's just this thing of I'm playing with a lot of students, young ones, you know, children, teenagers. Uh, I'll, you know, lead worship with various musicians. Again, it could be teenagers, people that aren't professional musicians, you know, mm-hmm. people that have different skill levels and backgrounds. And no matter what's going on in the music, it not a large percentage of the time, I'll say it this way, a large percentage of the time that I'm playing music on some le- whatever level, what's going on at the moment somehow is not what I'm necessarily hoping for or it's not it's not quite there, right? But what I'm doing is every single second I'm doing that, I'm waiting for that moment that surprises me and experiencing the joy of it, right? And as soon as that starts to happen and you get a little bit of that joy going, that was the point. (laughs) That was the point of the whole thing. And by doing that, the whoever else is in the room, I'll say the audience, whoever else is in the room, they feel that. They feel that moment. And it might be the only moment that really mattered. You know, I often say this to, to musicians when they're playing. I say, people with songs, it's funny. People remember the beginning of the song and the ending of the song and everything that happens in between. You can get away with a lot. Right. Right? Which is true to some extent. Yeah. It's like a first impression, a last impression. If those are strong, people tend to say, yeah, that was really good. If those are weak, even if you had a lot of beautiful stuff going on in the middle, people will be like, yeah, it was okay. Right. Right? But that aside, if you don't find any joy anywhere in there, people will be like, okay, that is what it was. But if you find the joy... Somebody connect. is going to come up to you and say, "That really meant a lot to me," mm. which happens all the time when I when I do things, and I know there were tons of wrong notes, and there's a lot of bogus stuff in there. And on a professional career musician level of speaking or whatever, it was subpar, subpar right. right? Subpar, but I don't care. It doesn't, it's, matter. It doesn't matter if it's subpar because what matters is it. It did its what did its job, which is to touch somebody somehow. Yeah, and that's how I look at it. But you know, if you're there's all different levels of music, and so if you're playing in a pit orchestra for musical theater, you can't think like that. No, everything no. has to go a certain way. Yes, right. It's on a clock, and there's performers in sync, mm-hmm. and but that's a performance. Okay, so right. so I kind of separate out performance from music i look at music as a more um organic social interaction Mm -hmm. whereas a performance is 
a presentation of such. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, that's something uh, of interest that you've, you've kind of had because you have done gigs, but you also do performances and are in pit. Uh, how, how did you get into it? How did you transition from the gigging economy to the more pit orchestra performance economy? Well, it just goes back to that that idea of I uh, just if something is put before me, and I'll say okay, sure, I'll give that a shot. So, <laughs> like after I moved to Pennsylvania, I played with the Harrisburg Community Orchestra or something. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody just asked me to do it, and I said okay, yeah. I not really qualified, but I'll give it a shot. Right, same thing for pit orchestras. So there's this show or that show that somebody. I mean, I don't do a lot of that, but I've mm-hmm. done enough of it to know how it works and to know how to do it fairly decently, I think. And well, you, you also converted, uh, <laughs> converted as if it's like a religion, uh, from drums to bass. Well, yeah. In fact, I've been playing bass. Like I did a gig Friday in Lebanon playing jazz bass. And like I said, well, see, that's that's early on. That's oh, just kind of how my my personality work so I was playing drums I got my first drum set when I was 14 for my 14th birthday and I played it for a few months and then I was yeah playing the drums and I'm like hey dad I I think I need to play something with notes on it because I mean the drums are just you know just sounds yeah and you know I want to be able to maybe write music or something Mm -hmm. I think I should get a bass it's related to drums. They work hand in hand with each other. And he said, "All right, you get a if you save the money to get a bass, and I'll put in the other half for the amp." So that's what I did, and I started playing bass. So I was playing bass when I was fourteen, and the first band that I ever played in was a junior high, middle school band called Defiance, <laughs> and. <laughs> They they would play at the middle school. They were a band already, but then their uh, bass player moved or something, mm. and so they needed a bass player. So the first band I played in was bass, not drums. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I thought I was better than the drummer. The drummer, actually, he, he ended up being a jazz singer, kind of a Harry Buble type guy. He works in Dallas. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I followed him on Facebook when I was on social media, which I'm not on anymore. Yeah, tell me more about that. Well, <clears throat> I look at it this way. I, I think the simplest thing, the simplest way to explain it is when somebody gives you something for free, you're the product. Mm. And so it's a trade-off. You say, okay, um, for my for the sake of my convenience to be able to talk to my friends easily or whatever, I'll be your product is basically what you're saying. And you can use all of this data about me to do whatever you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Card blanche. You don't really know what they do with it. So uh, I would say what they do with it, but who knows? They do whatever they want they with, it. They exactly. want with it. Exactly. Yeah. And you might say, well, you can't fight that, right? Mm-hmm. So you might as well just join it. But that just goes against my conscience. I mean, it's, and it's inconvenient. There's a lot of things I could do if I, say, had Facebook or Instagram or some other social media platforms, but um, not worth going against my conscience. It's like 
I can't avoid them having data about me because anybody that's looked into technocracy, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with that term, technocracy, if you look into it, there's all kinds of ways to collect data, right? There's so all sorts of ways. I'm not pretending that I'm hiding from big tech or that I'm hiding from the government or whatever, that they don't have all that data. They obviously do. <laughs> they have a number on you. It's a social yes. number. So I, my bottom line there is I'm just not going to volunteer that information mm. to them. I'm just not going to hand them that. They can find. They can go all their back channel ways and get it all and put together their profiles or whatever. But I don't want to just hand it to them. <laughs> So, how does that uh, challenge you in regards to gigs, dude? Well, yeah, um, it's like how many gigs did I get? I got gigs through Facebook and things like that. Yeah, sure, local musicians would contact me that way. Um, but I think those musicians still know how to contact me. Mm. I, you know, I have phone number, contacts, lists, all that kind of stuff. So. Anybody that really wants to find me can. Can. Yeah. Fair enough. So, how'd you get the the gig at the the music director of Wheatland? Well, that's an interesting process. Let me see if I can get everything in the right order. What happened there? I was. We went to a non-denominational church, uh, Petra, out in New Holland, and we were there for uh, almost ten years, and I with the a guy named Dave Helmuth who has AdLib. It's called AdLib Music. It's um, a ministry that you know helps churches and worship pastors develop their programs and offers coaching and stuff like that. He he was hired by Petra to do um, to build a program there, and so I worked with him on that for a couple of years. And then they needed a tech director. Um, that's someone who run the you know you want to, might think of it as the sound guy, but mm-hmm. it's so much more than that, so right? Much more. And they have giant screens and they've got all the video stuff, and they have that in lots of different rooms and for different events. So, so I was a tech director for a year, and then I got really kind of burned out on that whole process. But in the meantime, people seem to be recommending that um, the, the guy who had recently assumed the chair of the music department at LBC, Dan Hollingsworth. He he kept hearing through the grapevine that he should pursue me to be an adjunct professor mm. because they needed like a guitar teachers and stuff like that. So um so Dan Hollingsworth called me in and, and interviewed me and I started working with LBC, Lancaster Bible College. And at the same time, I had stepped down as the tech director at that church, and I was like, I'm ready for a change church-wise, right? And so we decided to visit Wheatland Presbyterian. And at Wheatland Presbyterian, the, when we first walked in, the first guy I saw was a guy named Matt Monticchio. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Matt Monticchio, I had played with, before he went to college, I think he was between high school and college, there was this, Dave Wilson had this band called The Young Sounds. Mm. It was a big band made up of young players, college, 
high school, college age guys. And at the time, I was like the old ringer. I was playing drums, so I was almost 30. I don't remember how old I was, but I was probably about 30. But I considered myself too old to be playing in that band. And at any rate, I, w- I had met Matt, but then Matt went off to college, and I hadn't seen him. So this is like, it had to be 10-plus years later, something like that. And I walked in, and Matt was there. And we walked into Wheatland, and they have... It's this building that used to be a uh, Christ, not Christian Science. What's the churches that have Scientology? Mar- not Scientology. No, um, it, Mary Eddy was the founder of it. Um, oh no. Anyway, yeah, the Christian Science Church. Yeah, Christian I think, Sci- Scientology. Yeah, something like yeah, that. It's not Scientology. Not, That's different. Scientology's like um, L. Ron Hubbard. It's not okay, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Those are two different things. Anyway, this huh. building it has like big glass windows and it was natural light, and you know we were kind of in the modern church that was uh, all closed off, mm. lights, you know, we had lights on stage and all that kind of stuff. And so we walked in there and I'm like, oh yeah, this is refreshing, and the music was refreshing too because being Presbyterian, you didn't the the song leader wasn't the worship leader. Okay, you have have the guy that stands at the pulpit, and there's an order of worship. It's almost like a liturgy, and he leads the worship service, mm. and the musicians are off to the side. Mm. And I was like, "That's cool. I like that." Because one of the things that was kind of burning me out about church was the whole stage environment. It oh, goes back to this performance versus yeah. music thing, and yeah. So, you know, I'm not knocking the performance more performance-oriented approach, but that wasn't for us at the time. So, um, And I really liked that, and so we started going to Wheatland. And it turned out that Robert Bigley, Dr. Bigley, Bigley, he was going to Wheatland, and so there were all these connections. Um, And soon, you know, I soon started playing with Matt, and we formed a Go Particle. So that's what the Go Particle is. Um, and what was really funny about that is about a year a year down the road, nine months into us going to Wheatland and all, me doing the band, playing with Matt. Matt, we were recording. We recorded our first CD. It's called Press a Button. <laughs> and <laughs> on the very last day of recording, we were recording at his house with his acoustic piano, and I had my drums. I was tearing down my drums, and he... And, he basically told me he's stepping down as the music director of Wheatland. I was like, oh, man, really? <laughs> so he did that. Now, I had come off this being the technical director at Petra, and I had vowed to myself, when we go to this new church, I'm not getting involved in ministry. I had played in worship I'd been involved in worship ministry ever since we were Christians in the early 90s, just constantly. Mm-hmm. And so I vowed, I'm like, um, I am going to go to church and sit in the pew like everyone else and go home. And I'm not getting involved in ministry. And uh, so that's what I did, right? I, you know, But I was playing with Matt. I, right. I was playing in the worship there. 
but the idea of working for the church, you know, work having a position at the church, I was totally against that. So Matt left, and they advertised the position. It was very cut down in hours, and it was like, you know, um, they they put it out there. And I remember we were in church the day they announced that they were advertising the position. They were announcing the position being open. And this little ding went off in the back of my head. Ding. You could do that. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I vowed I'm not doing that. And so I didn't. And and so they went without a music director at Wheeland for a, a good nine months. Wow. And I just kept, people just kept dropping hints at me and, you you should be doing this. Why aren't you doing this? Mm-hmm. You should be doing. It. I kept saying, "No, don't tell me that. I'm not doing it." Finally, they said to me, "Hey, um, would you just sit down, Doctor Bibley? You know, Luke Leduc, he's the pastor. They all said, "Hey, would you just sit down and discuss with us why nobody's responding to our, you know, position?" Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Which were there some obvious reasons, which I won't go into. But I was like, okay, yeah, I'll sit down and talk with you about that. Well, out of that discussion, I realized it was what God wanted me to do. It was time to do it. So that's how that happened. And I accepted it. And that was uh, going on 11, 12 years now. Nice. Yeah, it's it's been great. Uh, I had a big learning curve on that. I mean, that's that's one of those things that it was in front of me to do. It's like, okay, lead worship at a Presbyterian church. Well, I played drums for worship teams at contemporary churches and all that, but I don't know. You know, they they cover a broad spectrum yeah. of church history and history of church music. I don't know anything about right. that. I could barely play a hymn, <laughs> let alone, you know direct direct the music or whatever. So there's a big learning curve on it. Um and it's it's been great. I've got a whole new skill set. And like I said, all the all the things that you decide to do build your skill set. So you know, I work with a ministry called Swan and what we do is we go into public schools and teach music to kids that have uh parents that are incarcerated, right? And then we do performances. So we lead groups. So like I'll have 20 kids doing percussion or whatever and I have to direct them. Um, So this idea of being like a music director, that was new to me 10 years ago. Mm. I I couldn't conduct. Like I didn't know how to conduct or any of that stuff, right? So all those skills, they complement each other like like doing this work with kids and working with students and being a church music director and playing gigs and bars and you know, all come together. playing performances and musical yeah. pits, right? All of those things just give you this broad skill set. So I'm more of a generalist that way as opposed to a specialist. I could be a lot better drummer. Like I would say drums are my primary instrument, the thing that I'm the most comfortable on. I could be a lot better if all I did was focus on drums and only play drums and only play percussion. Mm-hmm. 
but that's just not who I am. So I play guitar and piano and bass and. Yeah, it's, sometimes it's, it's more useful to be a generalist than a specialist. Well, yeah, it's different, right? It's just you yeah. got to be true to you got to play to your strengths. So right. my strengths are, you know, because I play bass and drums and piano and guitar, I understand what everything in a rhythm section should do. Right. So if I'm a director, I have an advantage over a director who's just a vocalist. Yeah. They don't really know. They might know what they're not hearing from their players in the rhythm section, but they don't know how to communicate it. Mm. But I know how to communicate it because I play all those instruments and I know do this, mute that note. You know, I can tell them specifics because I know how to do that. Well, so it's a trade-off. It's like, yeah. So how does you are a very thoughtful person? It seems. How do, how does one, and you're you're talking about your Christian faith and all all of these different things. How how did that impact uh, your playing? What you would play? Uh, how you would approach people at these uh, gigs, bars, etc. Well, you know that's an evolving process. So I think the way the way it is now, it's. I've come to some kind of unity, I guess is what I'm trying to say here. I'm trying to formulate the words. Yeah, I don't approach playing at a bar much different than I approach leading worship at church. There are two, there are a couple of different I think there's one there's one important distinction between worship using music in worship and using music in as entertainment, okay, and it's just, and it's in the definitions of those things themselves, so the way I understand the definition of entertainment, and the way I understand it from me entertaining people in in clubs and stuff like that, you want to keep the attention on yourself, right, that's what entertainment means to hold somebody's attention, they're not entertained if they get bored and they're looking at the TV, Mm -hmm. And if you're playing in a bar or a restaurant or whatever nowadays, that's a very real, real thing. <laughs> real thing, right? They're not really listening to the music; they're watching the TV or, or whatever. So, so in entertainment, you're holding the attention on yourself because you're entertaining them. And in, in worship, you're holding their attention towards the Lord. Mm. Okay, it's an important distinction, and it's it's gray area. Right, sure. <laughs> it's gray area, and it's it's hard to walk. You got to walk a fine line about how you do that. Um, so you know, the it goes back to what I was saying about the joy part, though. That's the part that's the unifying thing that underlies both of them. If I can approach that from the same way, then. Um, I don't have to I don't have to turn switches and go okay I'm in church now this is this switch and now I'm in a club this is this switch. So basically what it is is I'm looking for those moments of joy. And those moments of joy have to come from a place of humility. So I can I think most of the time that I lead worship in church and I show up I 
showing up's half the battle. But when I get there, it's like I really don't have much to give here because my life is such a mess. Mm. And I've organized this the best that I can, but this band might fall apart. <laughs> you know, or whatever, like all these, you know, all these things that are they're not they're they're not in my power to make happen. I'll put it that way. I've done my best or I've not done my best and now I've got to sit with that, whatever. And it's like, okay, Lord, this is your thing. Right? So there's you start from that place of it's not your thing. It's God's thing. Mm -hmm. And then all of these people, the people that are here to worship, and you're providing a musical environment for them to do that, and then you've got your musicians that are there working with you to do that, they're more important than any than how I look. Right? So, because for me... Every time I get up there, there's I know there's people that I would like to impress. Well, I mean, let's be honest. Right. It's like, hey, there, you know, Wheelan has really talented people that are in the congregation yeah. and know what's wrong with the music. <laughs> they know what's wrong with the music. So I'm not fooling them, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I know what's wrong. They know what's wrong. If I don't want to focus on that, mm. like I don't want to focus on what's wrong. I want to. F so while things are, but I have a good ear and I know no music, so I know what's wrong while we're playing. Oh, the time is really bad right here. Right. Uh, the harmonies are messed up. Those yep. are wrong notes. So and so's lost. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still looking for that moment of joy. Ah, this part is joy. And because because if you're ready to get on that part right there, that's where the worship happens. Right. Right. It's because you're trying to get, help people experience joy of the Lord. They're worshiping the Lord. Yeah. And so the same thing, if I'm in a bar playing music, it's no different. There's people out there, and the band that I'm playing with is too loud, and the waitresses are dropping glasses, and, you know, the amps are humming because of the fluorescent lights. And a lot of things are wrong. Mm -hmm. But there's going to be these moments and just there's the joy and let it go and let it rip for that moment. And okay. then deal with the things that aren't right a few moments later. Right. Until the next moment of joy happens. And so... Just, I don't know, maybe that's a life lesson there, right? Because that's, that's how true. life it is. Sure sounds like it. Yeah, it's a roller coaster. you got to work for those moments of joy. Yeah, you got to be ready for them. Yeah. You can't, like, miss them because of all the things that were wrong. Because when it's all about how I look to people, so I guess what it is, is I've looked bad enough to people <laughs> enough times to where I don't, I don't care anymore. That's... I want I want things to be as good as they can possibly be, and I want them to be excellent. Mm -hmm. I do. So I work towards that. But I'm not going to beat myself up about the things that didn't come up to 
what I thought they should have been or somebody else thought they should have been or whatever, you know. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. If you do do that, you're going to be in a spiral forever. Is Not only are you the your worst critic, and that can go on forever and ever, but you're never going to impress everybody anyway. Well, that's the other thing. You do something and you make a cho- a song choice. Um, and you do it, and half the people, it it was the most touching thing that they've ever experienced in their life, and the other half of the people hate it. Yep. And so this is one thing about Wheatland Presbyterian being the music director there. It's been absolutely amazing because the music culture that Matt and the other musicians that were there before me helped establish was very eclectic and that was a great thing to walk into because um, the idea, I go into it with the idea, for instance, we do music in the beginning of a service that's called a prelude, and it's could be con- congregation participates and sings, could be just music or whatever. And I, have to, and I come up with one of those every week, right? There's something mm-hmm. every week to do. So one week I might, well, like a couple of weeks ago, we did Steve Reich's clapping music. <laughs> it's just two guys clapping, you know, and then it might be something with just piano and a bass, or it might be a whole band thing, or, um, you know, violin, or a classical piece, huh. or a contemporary song, whatever. So um, the idea that People there are not looking for this one thing to say their worship experience was valuable or whatever that they right. had a. Um, they're not looking for a certain thing. And so one week they know one week if I choose something that they didn't really relate to at all or do you know that the next week it'll be different. It'll be yeah. different. So I look at it that way. One week half the people are gonna have a great experience, and the other half are going to be like, what was that? The next week, that will be flipped, hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. That's the goal. Well, we're running out of radio time, but we'll keep going on Facebook Live because I I have a lot of different questions to ask. So if you want to follow us on facebook.com forward slash the story, Corey Rosen, please do so. Um, And if you really want to support us, please share, like, subscribe, follow all the all the marketing <laughs> stuff that you have to do because it, it is it is a little bit of a shame that that the only way to get somewhere is by uh participating in the algorithms that be well they're just tools right they're just tools yeah yeah right so everybody uses tools the tools that they think are the best <laughs> It's the way it goes. It's yeah. the way it goes, yeah. and that, such is the way is life. If you really want to support us, please do check out our merchandise. We have these really cool stickers, uh, vinyl stickers actually, and they're really uh, scratch proof. My cat tried got a, got a hold of one of them, and they were as pristine as ever. And I was really <laughs> surprised. I was like, "Oh my gosh, they're cat, indestructible stickers." At least for cats, I won't say I won't say indestructible, <laughs> but for cats, yes, maybe so. So if you and we also have hoodies that are coming out with the logo on the front and on and the first 50 guests on the back. Um, right now we're going to take a five minute break and we'll, I'm going to play my song that I wrote two years ago called You Remain. It's a song that I wrote during COVID and when everything is shutting down, 
I just realized, okay, God is the only thing that really remains in this life. With that said, this is You Remain. When I am weak, can no longer speak, you are there right beside me. When all hope is lost and I can't bear the cost, you are there paying it for me. And when things turn to dust and there's nothing to trust, you are there honest to me. Oh, it's clear who you're meant to be. You are my strength. You are my faith. When all things fade
that was my song you remain you can find that uh anywhere also if you are if you enjoyed that be sure to follow us on spotify all streaming platforms instagram as well at the story cory rosen that's c-o-r-y-r-o-s-e-n for those on the radio we're going to get you back to the music